So we left off last week, uh, Paul leaving Berea. Remember the Bereans were that group of people that searched through the scriptures to kind of make sure that what Paul, the man, said was actually something that God was actually communicating. So then there was a group of religious Jews that were actually pursuing Paul, didn't want him to actually preach the gospel, so they sent Paul to Athens so that he would be safe. And Timothy and Silas planned on eventually joining him in Athens. So this is where we pick up in verse 16 of chapter 17. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So two things happen. Paul gets to Athens. His spirit is provoked because he saw all the idols. So this bothered him. He saw all these idols of worship. It bothered him. So he wanted to do something about it. And the response of what he, what he decided to do was to do what he did, which was custom of when excuse me <laughs> i got a little flubbed up in my words okay so basically back to the start okay he was provoked in spirit so he decided to do exactly what he did when he entered everywhere else he went to the synagogue to actually preach from the synagogue then he went to the marketplace where he reasoned with people so he went to the religious center right but these people were very religious because they had all these idols so he decided you know what i'm going to go out into the marketplace and i'm going to talk to all these people in this region so two of the groups of people that he wound up talking to were philosophers. Okay, so let's look and it says this. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So just to give you a little bit of background about the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans followed the teaching of a man named Epicurus, which the, they believed that the goal of life was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. The goal of life was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. In other words, they didn't want to do anything that was hard, okay, like work. And some of you might be thinking, hey, my adult child is an Epicurean. <laughs> they may well be, okay. The Stoics, on the other hand, followed the teaching of someone named Zeno, which he said, basically, every person's going to encounter pain, so here's what you need to do. Just grin and bear it and take it, okay? That was their philosophy. So basically, he's talking to these philosophers about purpose in life, about what the goal of life is. So both of these groups, though, when Paul was interacting with them, said, this guy's a babbler, and he's teaching about foreign gods because he's preaching about this man named Jesus and the fact that he rose from the grave. So this is how they respond. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So now Paul has this great opportunity. They took him to the Oropagus so that he could teach. And now you're probably wondering what in the world is the Oropagus. And it's basically a hill, the hill of Mars, Mars Hill, they called it. So it was a place where the high court of justice of Athens was held. So it was a place of judgment. Right? It was on this rocky hill in the midst of Athens, Greece. So why did they bring Paul there? Well, they wanted to judge what he was teaching. They wanted to judge what he's, let's hear what this guy has to say. Let's judge what he's teaching. They like to debate and dialogue. Listen to what it says next. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here in the Athenian culture, they would hang around and talk and debate and listen. Some of you that were that are maybe in college or went to college, like philosophy class, everybody's like, oh, I believe this, I believe that. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? That's basically what they did. So if you can only imagine in Athens, Greece, they're hanging around and sharing ideas, okay? Can anything good come out of that? <laughs> Probably not much, okay? But something good is going to come out of it because Paul shows up. So in Acts 17, verses 22 through 34, he's going to challenge them. And his challenge is going to be this. Since there is only one true God, this actually demands a response. Since there is only one true God, this actually demands a response. You can no longer sit around and debate and listen and kind of pontificate on what you believe is true, you need to actually see what's true, and that truth actually demands a response. Because the one true God is actually God. He is real. All these idols and false gods are not real, so they don't really matter if you respond to them. So Paul is basically saying, he's launching into a sermon now, it's called the Sermon at Mars Hill, and he's saying, hey listen, you need to respond to who Jesus is. So let's look. So his sermon starts off. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he makes this statement. You guys are religious. You guys are religious. Well, why does he say this? Well, he says it because he says, For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. So basically they had all these idols and they would make up these gods and they would say, okay, this is the God of the sun, God of the moon, this and that. This is where we worship this one. This is the idol for this one. And basically they were so caught up in these false gods. Somebody must have had a bright idea one day and said, well, what if there's a God out there that we missed and he comes down and he's mad, okay? So then there's, there's your altar to the unknown God. We didn't know about you. Please forgive us, right? Well, then Paul uses this. He uses this as a springboard. He uses this as a springboard to basically say, hey, you know what? This God that you think is unknown, I'm going to make him known to you. He is a God that is known. And not only that, he is knowable. So let's look at how Paul continues. It says, the God who made the world... And everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the first thing that Paul does is says, hey, listen, this one true God, he is the creator and not created. So they're worshiping all things that they created. Okay, this idol, that idol, this altar, that altar. So they're basically saying, hey, you know what? This is what we've made. And you know what? The Athenians, they were educated. They were created. They had a very high view of themselves. So they came up with their own gods. They created their own philosophies. And they made their own idols. They elevated themselves as the creator. And they created gods to serve their own purposes. Now what Paul is telling him here is, look at creation. Now, in Romans 1, it teaches us about something called general revelation. I've talked about this before. That means everybody in the entire world can know there is a God by seeing creation. Okay, so you, you walk outside, you see creation, gorgeous day outside. You thank the Lord for that gorgeous day. He created it. Paul tells them creation is actually a witness that there is a God that is not created but he is actually the creator. So next Paul goes on to tell them the reason why this creator God doesn't need people to create him is because he created us. He actually gave us the breath and he's personally involved in our lives. So he goes on. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he doesn't need us. Okay. He's the one who made us since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So then he goes on to say this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So now what Paul's saying is each person, no matter where or when they lived on the face of the earth, it was all determined by God. No one is a mistake and no one is hidden from God, and everyone was created by God. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, and I've probably said something like this before, but we're like literally like a pencil point dot, right, when it comes to the course of human history, right? I mean, we think we're pretty important, don't we? Okay, we're not that important. Let me just tell you, okay? I know you're coming on Sunday, like, tell me something important about me. Well, sorry. Um, here's the thing. We're like a pencil point dot in the course of human history. So uh, we've been cleaning out our attic, and we found all these pictures. So we have pictures of our family and stuff. And then we have pictures of from when I cleaned out my dad's attic, and he has the pictures from when he cleaned out his mom's attic. So now we have all these pictures of people that no one alive knows who they are. Okay? <laughs> so I'm looking through. I'm like, kind of looks like maybe it's my grandmother's side. So someone with beautiful handwriting, I might add, actually marked who a lot of these people were in this one photo album. So I was able to piece together like who is who. And there was a picture of my great, great grandfather. I think it was maybe great, great, great grandfather. It was either two or three in Czechoslovakia. Don't even know his first name. But there's a picture of this old man standing in front of this old building and it's in black and white. Don't know what year it is, but I know it's my great-great-grandfather that lived in Czechoslovakia. So I'm looking at this picture, and I'm like, 
trying to kind of see. You ever grab like a regular picture and you go to zoom in? You're like, oh, we can't do that on the picture. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm looking at this picture and I'm like, man, I'm like, I wonder what his hopes and dreams were. Who was this guy? Like, what did he think about? Like, what was his day-to-day -day life like? I know absolutely nothing about this man, right? But he lived, looked like he was about 80 in the picture. And then you just, it, it's just a humbling thing to realize, you know what? We live on the face of the earth in this course of time. But then we have to realize this, that everyone had a determined and allotted period and a boundary in which we lived in. Okay, that's us. Hey, God determined. Even though we're this pencil point speck in the course of human history, the God of this universe cared enough to actually make each one of us, give us the life that we have, put us around the people that we're around, give us the ideas and the jobs and whatever else he has done. God was the one who determined all of this. And guess what? We're all here for a reason. Even though we're this pencil point dot on the course of human history, we're all here for a reason. And Paul goes in and basically says, and here's what it is. Here's why you're here. That they, talking about every person, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We're here to actually be in relationship with God. God placed you in this place. The events in your life are not mistakes. The events in your life are not coincidences. They're not random chance. Everything that has occurred, it's kind of like God is knocking on your door and basically saying, I am here, I am knowable. You can know me. You can have a relationship with me. You've heard people probably say this before. I believe there's a God, but I don't think we can know him. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Well, you say, eh, wrong, okay? <laughs> you can actually know God. He is knowable. That's what Paul is saying here. He's actually not far from each one of us. You know, going back to my great-great-grandfather from Czechoslovakia, I hope he knew the Lord because someday I'll get to meet him. I'll get to know who he actually was. So then Paul goes on and he says this, For in him we live and move and have our own being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So what's this all about? Paul actually quotes from Epimenides and Aratus, which were two philosophers that the people revered at that time in Athens. So Paul uses their own words to actually make the people think about the one true God. So this is a good example of Paul going into an area, knowing the culture that he's speaking to. Okay, this is important for us as Christians. I mean, we kind of have to know our culture, right? We have to know what people are interested in. We kind of have to know what people believe so that we can interact. doesn't mean we believe what they believe, but knowing and being educated actually helps us to be more effective with them. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, this one true God, this is, he's the one. It says this, being that then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So now what he's saying is because we are created by 
and image bearers of this God, it shows that he can't be some kind of idol that we stick on our shelf. He can't be something gold or silver made by us. In fact, he doesn't need us to exist, okay? We need him to exist. They inverted the whole thing. And you know what? We look back then like, that was dumb. We would never be like that. But you know what? We live in a culture where where we're on, uh, where are our own gods, aren't we? I judge for myself what's right or wrong. I do what I feel like doing. Do you realize that you're making yourself God? Okay? I call the shots. That's basically what many people say. So now Paul gets right to the point, And he says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So now he's saying, here's the one true God. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, meaning the time that you didn't know about this, the time that you didn't know who God was, He's overlooking and saying, okay, now you know. Now you know who he is. This foreign deity that this babbler Paul was talking about is actually the one true God. So Paul talks to them and he says, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent is simply this, changing your mind about who God is. So now he's asking these people of Athens, listen, you lived your whole life listening to these philosophers, maybe being one of those philosophers, creating idols and images and bowing to worship. Now you have to change your mind and actually call the one true God who he really is. He is Jesus. He is the one true God. And not only that, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul's saying, hey, listen, you know what? There's a judge. His name is Jesus. He will judge all. Okay, so basically what Paul's saying is you have to admit that he is the judge of all. Now, a lot of people have problems with this, right? People, I don't believe that. I don't think that's going to happen to me. I'm like, well, it doesn't matter if you believe it. You believing it doesn't make it true. It being true is what makes it true. Okay, you responding to it makes you included with it, right? So basically what's happening here is in our culture, this is not accepted because a lot of people say, I am the judge and the boss of me. I am the judge and the boss of me. I say what's right and I say what's wrong for me because it's what? I love this saying, right? And when I mean I love this, I don't love it. It's my truth, right? This is my, you gotta find your truth. No, the truth, okay? That's what we're looking for. So the truth is we all come into judgment. Someone must pay for the sin that we've committed. Now, the logical conclusion is if you sin, right? What's the logical conclusion? Who pays when you sin? You do, okay? You rob a bank, you go to jail, okay? Nobody's paying for it for you. But the truth is when it comes to judgment day, there is someone who is willing to pay, and his name is Jesus. In Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. The good news is the one true God was willing to come and die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. 
Three days later, rose from the grave to give us assurance that he actually is God. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, Jesus, he died. We hope he was God, okay? No, he rose from the grave to show us, to give us assurance that he is actually, in fact, God. And he was able to pay our sin debt on that cross. This is what sets Jesus apart, right? The, the creator God coming to save people. His resurrection sets him apart because it proves he has power and authority over the universe, over life and over death. The only one that can give us eternal life is the one who actually has power over it. So Paul preached all this to the Athenians. And here's the response. Because when we preach, right, we want a response. Hey, and you're thinking, well, you preach, Mike. No, no, you do too. Hey, when you're talking to your friends, family members, relatives, people around you, and you're telling about Jesus, you're preaching to them. I mean, people don't like that word, but that's what you're doing. You're actually telling them about Jesus. You're preaching to them. So it says this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So now we have this response. And really, only Jesus, the one true God, demands a response. None of those idols that they were worshiping demanded a response. None of the things that you elevate in your life and basically worship as if it's a God, even though you would never say that, the things, the, the power, the money, the possessions, the things that you reach out to to kind of fulfill yourself with, which you kind of made this like a little God in your life, okay? None of those things demand a response, right? None of those things demand a response. Jesus demands a response. Now, this verse actually illustrates how people traditionally respond when they hear about Jesus, so when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, they might respond in one of these three ways. Some mock. They'll reject. Eh, right? Do you have people in your life that are like that? Eh, you talk to them. You tell them about Jesus. Eh, eh, right? Okay, you, and then some of you just say, I'm never talking to that person again. But some of you are like, you know what? I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to talk about it when it comes up. I have friends like that. Friends for like 30 years I've been talking to. Eh, eh, eh. They still say, eh, okay? It's not going to stop me. I'm not going to be annoying about it. But if it comes up, you're like, hey, you know what I believe. You know, I mean, you know about Jesus, this and that. So, like, we start dialogue again. Some will, re will reject. And at some point, for some people, like Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet. You know, you might just be in such big arguments with these people. You just kind of step back, pray for them. If it comes up, they might reject again. But maybe, just maybe, they'll see who the Lord is eventually. Then it says this. But others say, we will hear you again about this. I would say there's probably a lot of people in your life that are like that, right? Like, I, I kind of want to know more. I don't know if it's for me right now, but I'm kind of interested, right? These are the people that, you know, they, they're kind of interested, but kind of not. You know, part of the reason why we meet on Sundays is not only to worship, but it's also to kind of welcome other people that want to hear more. You know what I mean? The, do you know that in like, in like studies, they say basically if, if someone wants to know more about God, do you know where they go? Church, <laughs> okay? Wow, <laughs> that's such a smart idea, okay? 
So, and that's why it's so important that we stick to the word because we want them to hear what God has to say. So that's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have Bible studies. A lot of you are part of Bible studies and somebody, oh, I was talking to a friend and they're hurting and stuff. So I brought them to this Bible study. They're not even a Christian and they come to a Bible study and they talk with other people that are studying the Bible. They want to hear more. That's why we have youth programs and children's programs and stuff because kids are kind of searching in life for their belief system and worldview. I, I love these people, right? These people are the ones that, you know, you can have good conversations with. You can actually research and answer their questions. But you know what? Maybe you're in this group right now. Maybe you've been coming here. Maybe you've been coming out and you've been hearing and you've been wondering and you've been learning. Let me just ask you a question. What's keeping you from actually trusting in Jesus? If you have an interest, if you're learning, and some of these things might be even helping you, what's keeping you from trusting in Jesus, from stepping out of what the scriptures say, death, and into life? Maybe the answer is nothing. Maybe you're like, you know what? I just, going to church was always kind of like a thing with our family. It was kind of like the right thing to do but you never really just trusted him, simply trust him. Just ask you, what's keeping you from trusting him? But then, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus and and a woman named Damaris. These were the ones who joined in. That's probably many of us, right? You, you're probably a Christian, but let me ask you a question. Have you joined in the work? And this is not a shot in the arm like, we need people to volunteer for this at church, okay? That's not the, my, this, this is really the reason why I want to bring this up, not only because we landed on the scripture, but have you joined in the work of God? Are you following his lead? Let me just tell you this. In your life, you will be like an Epicurean. You'll try to get the pleasure and, and you'll try to get things in your life that make you comfortable, make you feel good, or make you feel fulfilled. You'll wander through life trying to find fulfillment. I will tell you this, you will never find fulfillment if you do not put Jesus at the top of the hierarchy and listen to him. You won't. Some of you here are older Christians and you're like, yep, that's right. Some of you are younger and you're like, nope, that's wrong. I'm gonna do all this stuff to make myself feel fulfilled. And let me just tell you, you will not be fulfilled if Christ is not the top of the hierarchy. And let me tell you this, when you put Christ at the top, all those other little things that seem to be big things start to fall into place. Trust me on this one. Actually, test me on this one. Because if you start putting Christ at the top, guess what? You're going to feel fulfilled. You're going to find purpose, no matter what happens in your life, good things or bad things. You see, the one true God, he, just, he demands a response. Every day, he demands a response. You know what? Today, we're observing communion. And really, communion, we kind of respond to God, right? The first thing that we are reminded of is the gospel, what Jesus has done. You know, I loved what Mitch Glaser said, like, you know, a few weeks ago about how, you know, the, the, they have Passover to remind the next generation. Our reminder is communion, right? 
what Jesus has done. That's why we come here each week to be reminded what Jesus has done. He shed his blood in our place for our sin. But the scriptures also teach us this. Communion is a time for us to actually evaluate our own lives. So maybe for you, Jesus isn't at the top of the hierarchy. You're looking for purpose and you're trying to find fulfillment in all these other things. You're looking, for lack of better terms, you're looking for another God to serve. Another one to create and keep on the shelf or keep in the box. The one that you kind of like because he never says anything or does anything, okay? Never demands anything. You just kind of take him out when you feel like it, okay? Maybe that's kind of what you're looking at life like. Maybe that's even your Christian walk. You're like, okay, check. He's going a little long today at church. Um, you know, it's nice out today. Get going because I want to check my thing off the Christian list, okay? Here's the thing. Maybe that's how you're looking at your life. Maybe that's how you're looking. Maybe you're struggling to put Christ first. Maybe there's an area. Maybe it's not like your whole life, but maybe it's just this one area. God wants me to live in purity in this area, and I just don't want to. Maybe it's a lot of areas. I don't know what it is for you. But here's the thing. As we observe communion together, it's a time to take those other things and throw them at the foot of the cross. Ask Jesus for victory. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever area of your life where you just can't put Jesus first, you just have to say, Jesus, I need you to be first in this. I need your help. Please help me. So I'm going to give you a few moments just to pray on your own about those areas of your life, and then we'll partake together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, This is the cup of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for the life of the Apostle Paul, who modeled to us going into a culture and speaking right to that culture. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. But before we go and do that, we pray, Lord, that we would take care of that business with you. We, we pray, Lord, that we would put you first in our lives, that we would, re, we would respond to you in a way that you desire us to respond. Then when we go tell people, I pray, Lord, that when people reject, it wouldn't discourage us. I pray, Lord, when people have more questions and want to hear more about you, that we would be faithful believers to help them to understand those deeper things that they're interested in. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have trust in you, 
I pray that we join in your work. I pray, Lord, that we use our lives to bring glory to you because we know that that's the only way that we'll be fulfilled in our lives when we put you first. So I pray for anyone struggling today with fulfillment and wondering what purpose is for their lives, Lord. I pray that they would look to you, the creator God, the one true God, Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.